0: Neil and give you a little background about him. So he's a journalist and writer who lives in an old house in Washington DC, thus defying 10 generations of his family's western migration. He grew up in Colorado but studied in Chicago and New York City. He graduated with a degree in philosophy from Columbia University. The thousands of miles he drove as a New York cab driver formed the deeper half, though, of his college education.
1: <laughs>
0: he traveled and wrote from dozens of countries during two decades as a reporter and writer for the Wall Street Journal, and he was a part of the Wall Street Journal team that won a Pulitzer Prize for its coverage of 9-11. He founded and edits Gotham Canoe, an online publication devoted to life beyond doors and walls, and I believe you can just Google Gotham Canoe. And yeah,
1: that's fine. Okay. <laughs>
2: So we're going to start off our interview. Can you please explain to us how this project started, what inspired you to go on this walk, and how it came to fruition?
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, first of all, I have to just thank you all for coming out here tonight, um, and just express um, what pleasure I have in being here. Um, and it brings back a lot of the great memories I had when I was here almost exactly two years ago. Um, so you know, I live on Capitol Hill, nine blocks from the US Capitol where I have lived for almost a quarter of a century, surprisingly. And um, one day, this was years ago actually, I had this idea. I said, what if I just walked out of my house and went to New York as a pedestrian? Um, and what would that look be like? Um, how would a pedestrian interact with that, that land? Of course, I was thinking a little bit more, like, hmm, not literally up I-95, but something <laughs> like that. You know, like, if I wanted to get to New York, Semi-swiftly, as a pedestrian, how would I do that? Um, and then it terminated over time. I started to spend a lot of time looking at how the Colonials did it. For instance, how George Washington went from Mount Vernon to Manhattan for his inauguration, um, and how the postal route ran. All, all kinds of different things. And I started to read the travel logs of many of the people who had traveled back and forth. And then I made what was the obvious decision, which was, of course, not to go that way, but to go the way I did go, which you can see the route here, which really, I think, was the most logical way if you wanted to really find the most rich, sort of densely rich historical places and the best stories along the way and the best people to meet along the way. So, And, you know, part of the lure, I'll say, is that I realized that because of the extraordinary, rich, kind of ongoing experiment that is Lancaster County with the Amish and the Mennonites there, you know, which is something that literally goes back to the European Reformation and is a direct continuance of that, that I really had to go have a route that took me through there. So this was a logical way to go. So walk us from D.C. to the Mason-Dixon line. Okay. um, You know, it was interesting because this first phase I did was in some ways the most strenuous because, uh, one, I was not planning to camp in the woods. I was not (laughs) carrying a sleeping bag. I had no tent. So I had to find places to stay. And you might think, well, there's a lot of population between these two places. And there is... But once you get into these places, there's actually not a lot of um, density. And when it comes to motels or those kind of things, it's just really along the interstate. Um, So to find where I would sleep kind of determined, in a way, what distances I did. So I spent the first night at this incredible house that was owned by Harold Ickes, who was the longest serving interior secretary for Franklin Roosevelt. With, which also had the claim to fame of being the largest Sears house ever built, and it looked—it looks like Monticello. It was just amazing. And There's a whole story behind that house, but so this was like a 24-mile walk. I walked to Woodstock, that was about 23. The um, Riceville town was not a stop. I went to that was uh, featured in the book, but I went to Hampstead anyway. Um, you know, this was a fascinating stroll in so many ways. I went to this really wild little place I saw a map, the map called Young Man's Fancy. And, you know, when you walk through this area of the country, you find a lot of these places that are have these kind of curious names. Actually, Reisterstown was originally Reister's Desire. And, you know, there was a guy named Reister who showed up from Germany, and he built a house, and there out know, some sort of way station there, and I guess it was his desire, and then over time they, they called it right to town. So I was very intent, though, on um, just um, coming to the Mason-Dixon line, which of course is a extremely important, but outside of it being the border between Maryland and, and Pennsylvania, it's just sort of a theoretical thing, um, right? And it also had been for decades and decades the um, somewhat theoretical line between slavery and freedom, because as we all know, you could still be up here and not really free. Um, but so I was fascinated to spend time on that line and also to think about the approach to it. I mean, I'm a you know a white male of my age. I have no innate abilities to imagine what it would be like to be a person fleeing, as so many did, trying to make it this way, and particularly over the Susquehanna, which provided a lot more Um, security once you got over the river. All the same, walking those roads, which would not have been markedly different in terms of the ways they went at that time, gave you a kind of imaginative avenue to understanding at least some of that concept of what the Underground Railroad was about. Of course, it was about who can you trust and who can you not trust? And you would go from station of trustworthy person to the next. And I'll just mention really briefly that On the Mason-Dixon line, I found just totally by fluke this amazing farmhouse. And it was kind of, um, uh, not that I needed a proof at all of what I was doing, but this was the first truly great example of what it was I was doing, which was wanting to encounter things that you could pause over, examine, think about. And in this case, it was this farmhouse. I've been corrected, but I'm still not sure if it's right, but I said... 1830s, I think Jim had already found out that it had recently sold and was actually built sometime in the 1700s. A German stone farmhouse with this balcony that was actually just overlooking the the line itself, and then these barns on the other side. So the house was in Pennsylvania, the barns were in Maryland, and just nobody was living there at the time. And just to look at the hinges on the barn, which were all very well forged, but all were very different because they were each unique, and all the various features like that were, were really interesting. Um, so that was one of the, <laughs> the first kind of like, wow, um, moments for me just spending an hour on that property, which I didn't permit, you know, like, permission to be on that. Nobody came and turned me off, Anyway, um, it was a great moment all the way around
2: you ask another question you touched on the fact that you didn't take a sleeping bag you weren't planning on sleeping on the road so practically what did you carry with you
1: you know i um didn't bring my bag here but it was very small i really emphasized lightness um i had a laptop i had one pair of shoes i had very few changes of clothing and um it was about 17 pounds i had a fishing rod i was going to do some fly fishing with uh mayor helford but that never happened Um, As a matter of fact, I did do a moderate amount of fishing along the way, but um, anyway, it was all very much emphasizing the lightness of what I had to carry.
0: Um, I loved when you talked about the house with the balcony and looking at the difference between Maryland and Pennsylvania and how this arbitrary imaginary line meant the difference of imprisonment and freedom for a lot of different people. Uh, I just, I thought that was really just interesting. Another part that fascinated me was you um, talked about how you never had anything in your ears to listen to, to distract you from what you were seeing since you were truly present. I think a lot of us watching this, we have podcasts, we watch YouTube videos, we have audio books, music that we're always listening to. Why was that so important for you?
1: You know, it's a hard thing to emphasize over or, or to capture how profoundly different it is to walk like this as opposed to driving and you know i just drove here right now from my house so i did uh in two hours what took me something like six days seven days to do walking and i covered allegedly the same ground but it really had the two things two experiences that's nothing to do with one another I listened to a podcast, by the way, on the way up here, about the Hundred Years War, (laughs) Um, which, of course, had absolutely nothing to do with what I was, was, um, the territory I was crossing. Um, You know, when you go out from your house and you have a set number of things that you kind of want to think about. And, you know, I walked out of my house at the end of March of 2021. We'd been through COVID. Um, We'd been through all of these the church Floyd killing, the riots and protests in so many cities, the whole huge fight and dispute over statues and tearing down of statues, and what statues should we tear down or which ones should we keep. Um, There's a whole debate still ongoing about our founding, about was it a good founding or a bad one, was our story an uplifting one or a depressing one. We had the election. I was nine blocks from the events on January 6th. I saw it all play out. I went there and watched it. So there was a lot to think about, and I just had no desire to have music or anything coming into my ears. I, I just wanted to walk, examine the landscape, see how things flowed, really witness the spring. Because um, a lot of it wasn't just me meditating on history. A lot of it was also just experiencing the beauty of the land in between, and seeing how you can kind of tell when you're coming to a river because of the way the land begins to dip, and, and all these various features at work it's something i would really never done in that fashion before.
0: Yep, the art of noticing. We just speed right by on our cars where you took the time to notice. Yeah. So when you were going through the Mason-Dixon Line, you crossed it, you go into York, you spent a lot of time on the rail trail. And it was this time two years ago, so raise your hand if you've been on the rail trail in York County. And with everyone in this room. Everyone I'm sure has their favorite spot that they like to go to, whether that's the Howard Tunnel or maybe it's somewhere in downtown York. Walk us through, when you cross the mason dixon line, what it was like walking up the rail trail until you got to York.
1: I, I spent that night in railroad at the um, at the, the Jackson House, which um, Jim, who's not here, was nice to c- correct me because I was calling it the Stonewall Jackson House. <laughs> but I was in the Stonewall Jackson suite, by the way, so and it had something to do with Stonewall Jackson, which I thought to be kind of funny. And, you know, that morning was one of the crispest mornings because I remember the on the, on the path were frozen and breaking through them as we went. A friend of mine had come and met me that morning and we walked up to somewhere north of Junction. I forgot the town, and we had lunch there.
0: Seven Valleys Tavern. Yeah, yeah. yeah have yeah, you yeah, been
1: to Seven Valleys yeah. Tavern, everyone? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that was, of course, those two, the, the two that I met for lunch there, that was the first time since COVID, so a year that they had sat in a public yeah. um, place at all, and I was astonished by that. Did you uh, have
0: the chicken?
1: I don't, um, yeah. Okay. Let's say I yeah. um, So that walk was just fantastic and gorgeous, and of course, um, the creek was amazing. And to watch it, you know, keep going under us at various times, and and I, I have a whole description. Actually, that chapter I call Two Tracks Taken," and I stop there and and just sort of describe the, you know, well-known but on the other hand, amazing feature that. Lincoln came in uh, November of 1863, and he paused for something like 45 minutes on the right-hand track, sorry, the left-hand track, and there's a lot of discussion, did he get out of the train or not? And and there's some great photos from that that moment. I think he was waiting for the governor of Philadelphia, or sorry, of uh, Pennsylvania, who never showed up. And then he went on to Gettysburg, and then 15 months later, he came the other way, um, after his assassination on his way to burial, his burial in Springfield, and he paused there on the other track. and So I kind of used that as an opening to describe some of those events, including the amazing trip that he took all the way back as a, as a corpse for his burial, which was a huge moment in American life. Um, you know, I'll always remember when I left my friends at Seven Valley's Tavern, yeah, and They were getting back in their car to drive back to Washington, and I was like, Oh, I have four more hours to walk to York. I, I so would rather be me over them. And um, just the whole of that walk was was so great. And I went, I kind of got a little lost somehow, so I had to backtrack to go through the tunnel, um, which I did. And then I caught the trail. I don't know how I got off the trail, but and then I came in and was greeted by um, that wrecking yard that has all those cars that are smashed And I was like, oh wow, okay. I mean, I guess I'm going to ask up to York now.
0: Oh man, um, so one of the quotes that you said in your book was that you wanted to shrink your horizons. And I think when you just said that your friends were leaving to go to Washington, D.C., um, I, in my head, was thinking that you were lamenting your walk. You still have four hours, oh man, four hours to walk, but no, you were happy about those four hours. Could you tell us more about your desire to shrink your horizons?
1: Yeah, and backtracked backtrack just a tiny bit that, um, you know, one of the precursor events for this whole walk was that in the fall of 2017, I had a diagnosis. Um, And anybody that has a diagnosis knows that it's generally not a good thing. Uh, So they found that I had a cancer that was in my esophagus, and and the odds weren't terribly good um, at that time. So I was like, wow, I might be denied a huge chunk of my life that I was looking forward to. And um, as I waged that fight over the next four years, basically, that altered my own sense of my horizons as to what they were and there was, I saw that there was a great value in shrinking your time horizons to where you're not constantly thinking about that thing you're going to do, the fall after next, which inevitably becomes the fall after that, and the fall after that, and you tend not to do it. In this case, there was a whole stretch of time I didn't plan for anything that was more than four or five months away. And that taught me a good lesson just to, to do the things that you have control over doing and not kind of live your life in some foggy future moment. Um, And when it came to The Walk, it was about, you said, noticing things about just paying attention to what was in front of me. And, you know, we're all living at a time where a lot of our views of the world are being formed by what channel we watch on television, or what newspapers we read, or whatever, what we look at on Facebook. And I was very much interested in just going into the world and trying to put all of that out of my mind, and just say, I'm going to at least for the next month um, create a vision of the world that's just based on what I see, not what I'm being told from, about, uh, from far away by somebody else.
0: I think a lot of us in this room have had moments where we think about our bucket list and things that we want to do. And you thought about walking from Washington, D.C. to New York. Uh, and then one day you pulled the trigger and you did it. Did you have a watershed
1: moment that you said, I'm doing it, is this happening? You know, I finally, I was originally going to go out my door on the 29th of March of 2020. And as you all know, none of those things became possible. <laughs> uh, and it was funny because there were things that I really want, like I had a fixation about going to Ephrata and, and holding in my hand a copy of The Martyr's Mirror, which some of you in the other room may know is a famous... Anabaptist um, martyrdom text. And um, there's a there's an archive there that has dozens and dozens of these that go back to the 1600s. And it was literally when I heard from the archive that I couldn't go hold that copy of the Martyr's Mirror, and I said, okay, I can't do the walk. And um, of course, everything at that point closed down. Um, so, wait, what was your original, what, was your, what you mean, uh, <laughs> your,
0: your Your watershed moment. Oh, watershed moment,
1: yeah. <laughs> you know, what's funny about these things, we all go on vacations, and those are part of our regular order in a way. Because this was a very odd thing that nobody that I knew really fully understood why I was doing it, including my wife, <laughs> um, in a way, um, there was a... Um, non-obligatory, like you, I could still at any moment decide not to do it, and about a week beforehand, my wife turned to me at one point and she said, are you still going to do that walk to New York? And I was like, yeah, of course I am, I've been planning this thing for like a year and a half. And, but, you know, I didn't have to do it, um, but I was profoundly committed to doing it at that point. There was just, and you know what, it was actually one of the best things I've ever done, so, yeah.
0: Um, I think a lot for me anyway i was born and raised in york county um so i lived here my entire life and so here we have Dami too a great town born and raised and we have before us now this wall street journalist who came through york city and i'd love to know your impressions what did you think when you got here what are some um, memories that you still carry with you today
1: you know it's a little hard to recreate how all this happened but one um thing that was such a great feature of the walk was just, you make a phone call, you find somebody, they, they suggest someone else, they suggest someone else, and I think I might have reached out to you first. I oh, think, really? I think so. Cool. <laughs> I, I think, I, and I, you know, how exactly I found out about you, but it might have been Jim, but I think you told me about Jim, and then Jim told me about Mayor Elfrick, and then someone told me about, maybe you told me about Sandor. And then one of them told me about Paul Nevin, who's here as well, who, well, that's not a very good likeness, but he's there with the Thunderbird. And um, he brought me out onto the Susquehanna to see the petroglyphs, which was a truly magical moment not, that afternoon. So, you know, I what, and in talking to all of you, um, I realized that, and that it's interesting in the book, The chapter on York is the only chapter I decide to write in the present tense that's sort of like, um, I'm here, this is happening now. And I spend the morning with Jim, the early part of the afternoon with Sam Dorm at the Lebanon Cemetery, and in the evening, going into dinner uh, at Mike's house. And, you know, I call that chapter the memory boom. And, you know, I really wanted it to be kind of emblematic about how, at least in this one town, there are these people who are uncovering and remembering and chronicling um, a city's past, and you know I, I touch on this is all cursory, but you know these various elements of the. We went to the Gates House. These various things where that some of you know up until the early 60s, a lot of these aspects of the city's past had essentially been forgotten, and then there was a memory boom then, which then which was a sort of preservationist thing that happened. I know obviously there are all these murals, which are another form of um, of keeping track of stories and lore. And, um, you know, I took a walk with Jim and he was like, yeah, there used to be this hotel here, and there used to be this building here. And, you know, it was the parking lot scourge of like, the city's going to die if we don't have more parking, so let's kill part of the city by creating more parking. Um, and, you know, you want to, I'm just going to read this one section just briefly because it it kind of um, captures a little bit of that um, of the um, that aspect. Um, to hear Jim tell it, now I'm going to read that part. I will go straight to this one. York is in the midst of a memory boom now. It is shaking off its long amnesia and it's digging up and chronicling and remembering and depicting and translating into art and murals every imaginable aspect of its past, good and bad, comfortable and uncomfortable. This is not a fit of nostalgia for some golden time. Quite the opposite. It is an active and aggressive confronting of the past, both the paved over scars, but also the unheralded heroes and forgotten giants. Some national version of this, I thought, would be so good for the national psyche Um, and it was just I, I love that whole aspect of the day I spent here and it was one of the few places that I just stopped for a day, I stopped walking essentially and I just made the rounds of, and it fit together very well and it was a fantastic very compact day where I got to spend it with three people that have you know their own deep specialties of knowledge and in Mike's case um, you know, I walked through his door and into the 18th century. <laughs> I don't even know, probably about 5% of the things inside of this house are, are contemporary to this moment. Would well, that be right? Or am I overdoing it? He didn't get
0: into that section. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, like
1: He's got a Cuisinart in there somewhere. But that was a fantastic afternoon and, you know, just discussing the heritage of Thomas Paine and so many others one of the moments I love, considering we've you know, gone through a lot of what it means to make America great again, which also then raised the question was, okay, when were we great? When was our greatest moment? So I said um, to, I was just trying to, she's gesturing to something. Anyway, I said to Michael, so when was when were we at our greatest moment? And he said uh, 1789, was that 1781. 1781, was 1780. sorry, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. 1781, Battle of Yorktown, and I was like, uh, wait, we weren't even a country then, really. And um, that was my greatest moment. That was before the divisions took hold, as I understood it. Can I, can I finish that? Oh, sure. <laughs> it won't be on, on YouTube. That's right. Yeah. Because once we defeated our enemy, we became each other's enemies again. <laughs> so we put aside all of our division to defeat our enemy, but then we became whatever we... Yeah. Chaos we are now with all of our
0: opinions. So one of the um, enemies that Dami and I are trying to fight is that people think that York City uh, isn't safe, right? And in some cases, of course, there are some times where it's not safe. But I have some family members who will not meet me downtown for a drink because they say we well, shouldn't be there. And so we're trying to break this, Of so, you know, be reasonable, of course, but go come through York, it is beautiful, and there's so much to see. At any point through York, did you feel unsafe?
1: Only when I went to Michael's house. <laughs> 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 okay. uh, uh, no, no. And you know, the whole issue of safety and when you're safe, like, I, I, we can, I know you want to talk about this in a different setting, and we can, but... You know, a lot of people would say, um, well, you Neil, know, are you going to be safe on this lock? Are you sure it's going to be okay? And, uh, I mean, how do, you ju- how do you judge that kind of thing in advance? I did a, a funny thing I'll just mention briefly a year ago, where I became obsessed by bringing these Kevlar canoes that I have up to Manhattan to Central Park and um, canoeing around all of the seven bodies of water in Central Park. Um, I called it the Seven Seas of Central Park, and I got a friend to come from L.A. to do it. It was at night. It was a full moon. And everybody was like, you're going to be shot, mugged, arrested. (laughs) Um, Somehow it's going to go awry, like it's not going to turn out well. And it was one of the best nights. I've lived in Manhattan for years. I, I don't live there now. I drove a cab there for years. It was definitely the best night I ever had in Manhattan because it was just so out of the ordinary. And nothing happened. You know, and, I, and I never really thought anything would, and something could have, but that kind of anticipating danger is something that I think a lot of us fall into, and I think it's just a self-protective crouch and not a very healthy way to live.
0: And most people, when you went up to them, welcomed you with open arms. Um, they greeted you. They were able to talk to you. Some people even got you water and snacks. Um, what was that like? Because I know, like Dami and I, I'd be a little hesitant maybe being a woman, I'd be scared to go up to someone's property and start poking around, Um, but you were brave enough to do it and you were greeted with a pleasant surprise.
1: You know, I mean, I, i worked for years overseas as a journalist. I got extremely good at dealing with people in all situations, even across a lot of language barriers and things like that. So I'm, you know, a little bit better at this kind of thing than the average person, and I'm my height, my stature, my skin color, my gender—all those things make a big difference, and I would never dispute that. Um, I would also, on the other hand, um, you know, not fall for the idea that you know somebody of this or that description couldn't do what I did. Um, I, I, you know, I had one funny encounter that I I talk about as a kind of parable, where I met a guy in Northern Maryland outside of was in a huge, very rich newly developed subdivision outside of Baltimore. And I came by his house and my water bottle had gone empty. And I said to him, uh, do you know where I can get some water? And he said, <laughs> he was in his driveway. And he said, uh, he was in his 30s. And he said, uh, hmm. And then he gave me these really elaborate descriptions to a convenience store like two miles away. <laughs> and, uh, I just looked at him and I said, okay, I appreciate it. Thanks, no, I'm not going that way, I'm going this way. So I started walking and then he said, oh, by the way, I would be careful if I were you. And I said, uh, I don't understand. What do you mean, be careful? And he said, well, there are people in this neighborhood that might wonder what you're what you're doing here. And um, I then proceeded to tell him a story about this guy who's a national geographic writer, Paul Solopek, who's kind of walking around the world. It's like a years-long project. And when he walked across the country of Georgia, 54 nights, every night, he was put up spontaneously by the people of Georgia. And um, I told him that whole story, and I said, maybe we've kind of lost a little bit of our heritage as a species. Um, and he said, no, I understand, I think you're right. Um, I never got him to realize that he had water in his house. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, and I, and I, um, I use that as an excuse in the book to talk a bit about the hospitality, and, and you know, hospitality, you look in the Old Testament, you look in, in all kinds of um, religious traditions, you're going to find things about not just how to treat the stranger, but the whole concept of um, hospitality. And we've essentially made an, an industry of it, right? So it was um, it was fitting that I filled my water bottle in the end at Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> <laughs> um, so as you are leaving York City, you decide to head west
0: and
1: you go to Riceville to get
0: to the river, what was that part like? It's very easy. Very easy. You know
1: what's so funny is, uh, and somebody, so there are gonna be people in the room when I say this, they're gonna be like, God, what a fool this guy is. I didn't realize until a couple of days ago, and I've been groping to try to describe this phenomenon, um, that the Greeks have two words for time, one of them is chronos, which is chronological wristwatch time, the time that we regulate our lives by. It's the time that goes fast and we mourn its passage. And the other is K-A-I-R-O-S. And that is a kind of a liminal, like, um, revelatory time. It's the time that we... I think it's why we remember so well, like, certain flash images from vacations or from holidays or from being with grandchildren, or why certain moments stand out, and the whole of this walk actually took place in that form of time, so I could actually talk to you for like probably three hours about that one day. I mean, I met the guys at the fire station on the way out of York. Um, I met a woman whose husband had just died of COVID, and we had a conversation I could recite almost word for word. I walked... Uh, all along, I remember, and I write about it in the book, because I, I find it fascinating when you leave a town like this, I sort of describe how the chocolate blocks of townhouses gave way to the separated houses that are now largely like chiropractic, you know, places and drug treatment center, and that kind of stuff. A few people live in a few, and then slowly that gave way to the convenience stores and the sheets, and, and then that finally gave way to like Walmart or whatever, the big box stores. And then finally, after what was like an hour and a half or two hours, I was in the countryside. You know, and I could smell like manure and seahortment cows. And there was a funny moment where I'm walking along and a woman I didn't really see, she drives by, and then I hear like, and she takes a U-turn, drives into this parking lot, she gets out of her car, and she says, are you that guy who's walking to New York? <laughs> and, uh, I thought it was, yeah, and she said, oh, I just want to meet." To get um, breakfast for my boyfriend, and I just saw you and i have seen you on Twitter. And so we took like a selfie, and that was my fir- first road fan. I had, the, <laughs> I, had, like, I, doing, I had like 10 of these people that came out of nowhere all the way, and some of them were incredibly helpful um, in a lot of ways. But you know, I was fascinated. I asked her, I said, So when am I going to start to see that I'm arriving at Susquehanna? You know, because. Rivers make their marks in many, many ways, and generally, you know, I, the Susquehanna, I think, is like the fifth or sixth oldest river in the world. Um, it's been doing its thing for a really long time. And so, uh, I kind of was, I was, it's not like I hadn't been through this way, but I was still kind of waiting for, like, the first suggestion of it. And she said, oh, you're not going to get that until the F.W. Hall. <laughs> <laughs> it's basically like, you get to Wrightsville, and then boom, there's this Susquehanna. Um, and, you know, one of the things I did upon departure, walking out my door, was I kind of granted myself the freedom to be astonished and to be amazed and to not act as if I already know these things. And when I got to the Susquehanna, I was like, wow, this is a really amazing body of water with an incredibly long, I mean, in, in unimaginably long history, right? We have no way of putting our minds around that kind of time. And it was, for a long, long time, the demarcation line between the frontier, the sort of semi-known America, and the completely unknown. And I write about some of that, the early mapping of, of, of that way towards Wrightsville. And, um, you know, that is such a fantastic place with the various footings of the older bridges that were burned and destroyed, and the new bridges that have replaced it. And this is such an incredible story to be derived just from there, standing on the banks of that river. And then I walked across the bridge, which of course takes a long time, and I met Paul Nevin, who then took me down the river and we went out to see those petroglyphs, which you know, I don't know if Paul's going to be giving guided tours to thousands of people now, but if if you're dealing with bucket lists, I would recommend everyone here get out to see those, because you know, people lived around here and unlike us, we're leaving a lot of things behind, not all of them good, um, including gargantuan trash mounds and every other thing that'll last thousands of years. These people left almost nothing behind. They left you know, piles of oyster shells, middens, um, they left axe heads and things you'll find occasionally, arrowheads, and then they left that art. And as Paul described it, that's uh, on particularly little Indian rock, the most comprehensive, you know, collection of rock art in this whole part of the country and one of the most extraordinary probably east of the Mississippi. And, you know, when I first found out about those, I was just like, wow, that is just, I really, really have to go there. And the day, the afternoon we were there was a standout day. Um, dare I ask how
0: many people have been to the Petroglyphs? more people than what I thought. So we should compare that to the Seven Valleys Tavern. (laughs) I think this is a good wake up call for a lot of people in the room to take the time and go and see them. Or if you're something in your county that you've been meaning to just stop and take a Saturday afternoon, go and do it. Yeah, it's profound. One of the, um, and please correct me if I'm misquoting, I believe you said that when Paul took you to the petroglyphs, it was like he was in like a church. It was like sacred for him. Um, so, w- tell us more about um, the uniqueness of being in nature but then also touching something that is just so
1: ancient. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to speak entirely on Paul's behalf, but I do describe this in the book how you know he had had his own um, encounters with these um, images going back quite a long time, and they had themselves, when it comes to our you know collective European encounter with. With them and our knowledge of the, their existence, I mean it goes back to the um, you know 1850s and 60s, and interestingly there's a whole kind of archaeological um, thing that was done that was somewhat systematic even during the Civil War, um, which is amazing, um, and you know Paul has spent a lot of time out there really understanding. Uh, we don't completely know exactly what these things are telling us, but there's a lot of alignment with. You know, various um, equinox and, and um, solstice moments. And he's gone out a number of times for the spring and fall solstice to see the alignment of the sun rising or setting um, with certain of the figures. And um, you know, just he had, there's a way that if you have a, a wet sponge, you're not doing any damage at all to the, to the images. But, and he just put the wet sponge over them. It kind of brings them out. And you can see he's got a sponge in his hand. And um, I'll always remember he looked up at me and he was like, "Are you ready?" <laughs> I mean, you can see them in a light form, but then when you put the water on, they just go, "Poof!" And um, you know, there was this great walking man figure, which is just this man with these big hands and these big feet and kind of this wavy trail underneath him. And you know, I was at that moment a walking man, and to see this depiction of this other walking man uh, on that day, and it was Easter afternoon, and I had not gone to church, so it was my church. And um, it was it was very much of a, of a sacred moment in a very sacred place.
0: Um, so now that we're leaving York County and you're seeing the difference then between our county and Lancaster, you noted that in Lancaster it seemed a little bit more planned out, the lines were a little bit more crisp. So what was then your takeaway of York County as a whole?
1: You know, uh, uh, this is like... In journalism, we have the expression of parachute journalism, where you just like parachute into a place and you land and you start writing authoritatively about it. And in my case, <laughs> it was um, ambulatory journalism. You know I was, I spent a day here, I walked through it. I did a lot of work beforehand, and I did even more after the fact when I wrote about it. Um, but it is, by definition, what it is like. It's not a profoundly deep knowledge. But I decided to grant myself the freedom of um, trying to pay as close attention as possible and understanding and seeing while walking the differences between these places. And you yeah, know, I did a lot of reading before I went of all that there was. There are hundreds and hundreds of travelers that came to the United States in the 1820s and 30s. The best known are Alexis de Tocqueville and Charles Dickens and people like that to describe the country, traveling through it, and they would do. You know, especially at that time, there were these very distinct micro nations essentially. There were linguistic, that were uh, religious, that were national, and that they still, in a lot of ways, exist, right? The people that settled here a various stock, a lot of Germans who settled here, they're different in large part from the Germans that settled on the other side of the river. Um, well, they came for different reasons, they organized their farms differently, a lot of them built different kinds of barns. Um, Again, I'm not. I haven't written a textbook on this subject, so this is very cursory, kind of like wow, sort of noticing. But I just walking up to. I spent the night kind of over here in Conestoga, and then I walked this. By the way, some of these things are not exactly um, that. That wasn't nearly that length. But um, and just the um, the barns and they were designed. I was just kind of blown away by the majesty of some of those farms, and um, and I. I do, I, it's interesting, I do, I can't really emphatically prove this, but I still think that that, that the, the move you make from going across that bridge is one of the biggest leaps kind of in the American cultural domain. Or, I don't know, it's, it's just, they're two very distinctly different places considered they're just separated by a river. I think the who settled it, why, the, the thinking that they had of being on the other side of Susquehanna was markedly different and as we know one looked very much to the south to baltimore etc the other looked very much to philadelphia and had like a very direct um, line i mean the conestoga wagons were built in large part to deliver grain into philadelphia along that highway so tell us about a highlight from your walk through lancaster oh well you know um the, it, I did have a facet at this when I spent the day in Lancaster City itself. Um, my focus there was to think about and spend time with people making a comparison between James Buchanan um, and Joe Biden, the only president from Pennsylvania, and not exactly a person held up to great favor now. And Thaddeus Stevens, who was his direct contemporary, they died about two months apart in 1867, I think. And, um, you know, it's fascinating in Lancaster itself. There's this great tectonic shift underway where they're kind of putting Buchanan in its place, which is not holding him up as a great moral arbiter or anything else. And they're finally giving Thaddeus Stevens his due and renovating his house. And it's soon going to be a sort of civil rights museum. And I think that that's a fascinating trend thing that's going on. I really liked witnessing some of that. I think of those, you know, when we talk about who deserves a statue, who doesn't? Thaddeus Stevens deserves a statue. James Buchanan, not so much. Um, uh, and then I went from there into uh, what I kind of jokingly called anabaptist um because I was sort of naming some of these micro-nations that I was going through, and you know, when you go into that heavily Anabaptist area of Lancaster County, as I said before, you are walking back in time in profound ways, and you know there were very distinct forces that brought those people there. And William Penn simply invited them to come. They're very good farmers. They've also spread out into. They were in Russia at one point. They were, you know, Canada, all over the place. Um, and I just had some amazing encounters with the people on that one day. In particular, I met a group of. Um, I don't have that picture here. Mennonite school kids who were playing softball. And we hit it off um, in our playground. And then they invited me to go in. This is over in Farmersville, which is near Ephrata. And uh, they said, could we sing some hymns for you? And I was like, yeah, you could. <laughs> <laughs> I have time for that. <laughs> uh, so we went into the basement of their school, and they sang these two hymns, which were really extraordinary. And it was such a powerful moment, because these were eighth and ninth graders. And it was this gorgeous spring afternoon. and we went downstairs and they sang these two songs about the afterlife and the longing to be at that time, which I found to be kind of profound when I thought about it later. Um, and I've kept in touch with all of them, not the kids, but the teacher, Neil Weaver, which again goes to that really interesting fact, a feature of a walk like this where I made so many friends along the way, even though I was only there for like 45 minutes. So They invited me up last December for a big Christmas concert, and I went, it was like 700 people in a huge hall, and they sang two hours worth of Christmas hymns. And then I'm meeting a bunch of them, I don't know, two dozen families tomorrow in the same place, and we're going to talk about the book, and some of them might buy books, and then they're going to sing for half an hour. So that was quite amazing.
2: Can you give us the highlights from the rest of your trip to New York?
1: Oh, wow. I know. We're probably running out of time. There were, there were so many. I mean, I, um, you know, my encounters with the rivers were always important. I made a, a thing, of course, about going over the Delaware, where Washington did at Washington's Crossing. And a friend brought some kayaks down from outside of New York, and we paddled across. That was also another great moment. I'm, I'm walking down the canal, the Delaware Canal, path, and um, I'm getting towards Washington's Crossing. And this guy's walking up the other way, and he's on his phone, and then he sees me and he says, well, I gotta go, and he puts his phone away, and he says, are you that guy who's walking to New York? <laughs> uh, I said, yeah, I am. He said, do you mind if I walk with you? I said, no, no, of course not. So he starts walking with me. He said, where are you going? I said, I'm going to Washington's Crossing. And he says, you know, it wasn't like that, like what you think it was. And I said, how do you mean? He said, you didn't go across on a little boat like that. And... Um, so then he just gave me this incredible narration for like 20 minutes, of the Durham boats and the actual boats that that uh, Washington and the rest of the Continental Army used, and the flat boats that they used to carry the horses across. them, because he had grown up right there, and he had been to many many of the, the reenactments they do on Christmas, and I said one time I was like, did somebody send you here like why <laughs> <am I> here? <laughs> like. like I'm trying to write a book about this and um, I couldn't have figured a better ca- character than you. And, you know, just some herald who comes along and is like, oh, let me tell you what it was really And, and it was great because he was like channeling the, the soldiers. He was like, uh, you know, Washington hasn't paid me for weeks. The shoes are worn out. You know, we've been thrashed for months. We're driven across the Delaware. He has this crazy scheme to go after the Hessians, you know. And it really it was a great moment because it brought to life, like, that's what it was like, right? I mean, that's, people were like, what am I here for? What am I doing this for? And, you know, it's become a fabled moment in American life for good reason because it was one of those turning points, that little ten days after you cross that river. Turn the turn the tide. I mean, it really then turned even more the next winter after Baron von Steuben and various people showed up to give us a lift. Um, but still, and that was just, It was moments like that. I'll just mention one other that. Well, I could mention several, but when I got one of my big obsessions was how is the walker going to encounter I-95, and what's going to be my line of attack. And I found before I left there was this town called Cranbury in, in, in New Jersey. It's exit 8A off the Jersey Turnpike. And it's one of the best perfectly preserved 19th century towns in the whole area of the country. And it was the middle point in the postal route from New York to Philly. And it's also right to the east of it has all these warehouses, Amazon, Wayfair, all that stuff. And running right between them was this brook I saw on Google image. And I was like, it's hey, going Cranberry Brook. And so when I got there, I met with some of the historical people. And we had a great conversation. And then I said, um, oh, I'm going to leave here in a little bit. And I'm going to walk up from the lake there, up that brook. And I want to go through the the, um, way, the warehouses. And then I'm going to go under the turnpike along that brook. And there was a woman there who was well under her 80s. And she said, no, you're not. I was like, uh, what do you mean? She said, you can't do that. It's not. There's no way you can walk up that thing. It's like total swamp. And she said, I have an idea. when she left for a second. She came back and said, I fixed it. And like five minutes later, her son showed up. And he said, OK, I've got a kayak. I'm going to give you the kayak. And you're going to get in it. And you're going to paddle up Caraberry Brook. Now you're going to come to all this fallen timber. You're going to have to do this to get over it. And then you're going to come to more fallen timber. You're going to have to, to do this. And then he told me this whole story. And he said, then once you go over that third obstacle, you're going to be there. You're going to, then you're going to be able to get under the turnpike and it's going to be fine, it's going to be a great trip. And I said, that's great, so what am I going to do with your kayak? <laughs> and he said, don't worry, just leave it there. Oh, I'll come get it later, um, tomorrow or so. And, you know, that again was one of those just like, how did that all fall to place, you know? And um, kayaking up that river, which, you know, I would argue has been unchanged for millennia, um, except for maybe the water quality. And um, you know, being surrounded by all these just-in-time delivery just want it now, want it an hour from now. And, um, you know, you kind of get the feeling that Cranberry Brook, a thousand years from now, I'm pretty sure it's gonna be there. I don't know if the warehouses are gonna be there a thousand <laughs> years from now.
2: So, at the end of all of our presentations for Hometown History, we try and have takeaways. So, if you could share maybe like one big takeaway from this journey with the audience, what would you choose?
1: Yeah, I think my main takeaway would be um, that there's just a really profoundly different America out there, or even kind of a world out there, than the one we see reflected from our car windows, or on television, or on whatever we look at online, that it's a world filled with very particular things, uh, with very particular people. And if you walk through it, uh, over time, like that, paying attention to those particular things and and being open and receptive to the people you meet, uh, it just can be a profound experience. And, um, it's a hard thing to convey how astonishingly different um, the experiences are between driving. You know, you could drive to these very same places and arrive at them, but you haven't arrived at them in the same way that a person has who's walked because I I cut a continuum from the front door of my house, all the way to the Central Park in Manhattan. And that continuum was the vital element, really, because I could then see what connected me directly to all those places. And um, you know, I'm not trying to argue that I saw reality. Like, you know, well, <laughs> this is it, because, you know, it's a complicated place we live in, right? There's a lot of bad things going on. If I would taken another route, um, other things would have happened. You know, it's interesting, at the end, I end the book, not to give, it, this is a spoiler alert, uh, <laughs> but I came up a few uh, weeks later, and actually, we had dinner. Um, I met, I went and met with Neil Weaver and some of the men and men, so I kinda wanted to check on a few facts here and there, and loop back to some things for the book purposes. And when I was driving from here over to the Farmersville area, past Africa, And I'm driving on the big road now, I guess 30, going across the big bridge, going 75, angry if somebody's slowing me down, Um, you know. And I'm looking over to my right, and I'm like, I know that the road I was on that day is over there. Um, And all of the roads that were named after mills or schoolhouses or whatever, um, and all those people I met are over there. But the road that I was on that day is not there. You know, it was that one day. I was that one person. I had that one set of experiences. And um, I don't even know if I could recreate that same... Well, I know I couldn't recreate that same walk, but whether I could find something that fell together as magically as this particular walk did. Um, I guess that would be my main takeaway. The other would be more, just if I can have a second, quick one, is. Um, it does. There is a sort of spiritual transformation that takes place if you do go out over an extended period and just pay attention to things. And I had a great encounter at that same Mennonite schoolhouse with this teacher after the kids went upstairs. I said, Miel, um, tell me a little bit about what the Mennonites are about. And he explained a couple of their core tenets. And, you know, considering that they obviously conform to a lot of things internally, one of their core tenets is non-conformity, which is is to the outside culture. And when he was talking about that, he quoted a line um, from St. Paul of the Romans, and I'm I'm not a biblical expert, but um, the line is something along the lines of do not conform to the world, but transform yourself through a renewal of your mind. And when he mentioned that line, which I then, it was like a minute later, I said, wait a minute, what was that line you just said? And he went back and he said it to me again. And it just sort of ignited a light bulb in my mind that here was a, a line from the New Testament going back to, you know, the time of St. Paul. That was so key to me, anyway of this concept of trying to create your own self, not letting it be formed by what the world thinks you should look like. And then this act of kind of ongoing transformation, of renewing your mind, um, which was sort of what the book was about in a long ways. So, anyway, those are my takeaways.
0: So, you only gave us a small portion of what to expect in the book. So, if one, uh, somebody in here wanted to purchase it, they can buy it right off front. What about the viewers online?
1: Um, they, they absolutely have to buy it online. <laughs> <laughs> it's mandatory for everyone to buy the book. Um, yeah, I mean... Bookstores, Amazon, Barnes and Noble—all those places exceedingly available on, online, and um, you know I'm sure it's because we have a bookstore here, which was nice to come here to bring the books so, Um I've I, I, not just seen the praises of my own creation, but I do like what this book became, and um, I call it a walk of life. right there, memory and renewal, um, and. You know, the memory is not my memory so much, so there's a little bit of that, but our memory, what it is we do remember or don't, and how we go about doing that. And then my own sense of renewal, but at least it sort of opens a window into um,